for good through my tears I believe his ways are higher than any of my own and though my heart aches he makes no mistakes it's for my good and for his glory this trial's not the end of the story there's a bigger picture God alone can see with my Lord through the skies. Heaven 
song handouts, page number 44, we'll work till Jesus comes, page number 44. of Christians and yesterday's Christians is today's Christians want to feel something. Yesterday's Christians wanted to do something. You know, we've been saved and God saved us with a calling. That's each and every one of us. We have a purpose and that is to worship. Yes, worship produces a feeling at times, but also to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've got a generation that that concept is very, very lost. And uh, that's why I'm glad that we can sing about it, working till Jesus comes. Not working in the power of the flesh, but we're saved. God's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us gifts and talents and abilities. And as good stewards, we use those for the glory and honor and praise of our Savior, Jesus Christ. On the second verse. To Jesus Christ I fled for.
There. If you look down the third line, it starts out with the winds of hell have blown. Every time we get to this line in the song, just the ladies are going to sing that. All right. And then the men will come all back in on that fourth line. So we're going to go through this thing once. Going to kind of sing through it. And then we'll kind of get the tune in our heads here. And then we'll sing the whole song after we sing through the first verse. That's kind of a good. Let's get the tune in our heads. All right. Here we go. The cross is standing fast. Hallelujah, hallelujah, defying every blast. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Now this will be the ladies. Here we go. The winds of hell have blown. The world is and everyone, then it is not overthrown. Hallelujah for the cross. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah for the cross. Hallelujah, hallelujah. It shall It's going to start back over, sing the first verse. We'll sing the song all the way through. All right, here we go.
get your blood pumping on a Sunday morning. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You got to sing that chorus like you're uh, cheering for your favorite team. Amen. In the championship, you just got to let it rip and uh, not worry about how, how you sound or what people around you think. We're singing hallelujah to our king. And so you just don't worry about it. You know, self-consciousness is just the flesh. Amen. So we don't need to be self-conscious. We need to be God-conscious. But uh, hallelujah for the cross. What a wonderful, wonderful song. Not the easiest to song, song to sing, I will admit. Got some really, really low points. And you might be saying, well, why don't they just raise that up a key so we can hit those low notes? Well, then you're not going to be able to hit the high notes on the chorus, right? So you just got to do the best that you can. But uh, praise the Lord. You know, I uh, during the welcome, I actually didn't welcome anybody. I just talked about the song that we were singing. So welcome. How's, how's that? And welcome live stream listeners as well. By way of announcements, first of all, we have Bible reading calendars in the foyer on the information rack, as well as these checklist uh, system of going through the Bible throughout the year, two uh, slightly different systems, but uh, both of them will get you through the entire Bible at least once in a calendar year, and so be sure and uh, grab those, take advantage of those. If you read through your Bible in its entirety last year, then uh, be sure and let us know. If you would let uh, Christina over here, raise your hand up really high, my trusty clerk, if you would let her know, then uh, we would love to provide you a Bible reading certificate for last year, and so uh, just be sure and let her know. Uh, we do have tithe envelopes available for you if you'd like to just have uh, an entire box to take home with you. And uh, as a reminder, because we're not passing the offering plate, uh, you can uh, fill out your tithes, missions, or uh, building fund giving, and you can drop that in the box out there by the water fountain, or you can uh, sign up for our uh, church Realm app and uh, just let Christina know and she'll get you all uh, hooked up with that and then you can give online and it's uh, real simple and real easy and so whichever way uh, we do appreciate your faithful giving. Throughout COVID, the giving here at Temple Baptist Church has been uh, very, very good and so um, not only uh, do I commend you for that as a pastor, but certainly uh, uh, God would commend you for your faithfulness and uh, I'll not only commend you, but uh, also will bless you. Uh, one announcement here that is um, not on your, your uh, handout here this uh, morning, and that is Kids Choir. We're going to be starting up a Kids Choir next Sunday evening, and that's going to be at 5.30 uh, for about 30 minutes before the evening service starts which uh, that's uh, one of my next announcements, and that is next Sunday, we're going to have Sunday evening service at 6 o'clock. And unless, I would have to say, unless we have a major outbreak here in the congregation, we're going to continue, even though the, uh, the COVID numbers in our community are really, really skyrocketing right now, we're going to start back Sunday evening, and I just encourage you to uh, to be cautious and careful if you are uh, sick, even if you're really, really certain that you only have a common cold, uh, please uh, just assume that it might be COVID and um, quarantine yourself and don't come to church and uh, be sure. And uh, if you've been around people that you might have infected, then certainly be courteous and cautious so that we don't have a major outbreak because I don't want to start 
canceling services, whether it be the Sunday evening or even Sunday morning or Wednesday night. We want to continue moving forward in 2022 for the Lord, and uh, I'm really encouraged right now, so let's do everything we can to be careful to uh, protect one another, whether it means wearing masks, staying socially distanced, or as I mentioned, quarantine. And some of you may say, well, I've already had it. Listen, honestly, that doesn't mean really that much because a lot of people are getting it multiple times. Two, I know, I know firsthand, I have family members that have gotten it three times. And so uh, you can certainly get it again. And then you may say, well, I'm vaccinated. Um, I hate to I hate to tell you this, but um, whatever the government has been saying the last couple of years, uh, being vaccinated doesn't keep you from getting it or keep you from spreading it. And so uh, just please be mindful of that so that we can continue going forward as a church. And then also uh, just a couple more announcements, and uh, we'll sing another song Wednesday at um, Wednesday at 7 is Bible study. And then also Master Club and Youth Group starts back up after last week's break. I would encourage you, if you didn't hear last Wednesday night's message, please um, uh, get, get that online. Brother Sam, is that available on our website yet, last Wednesday's message? Okay, it's not quite there yet, but I know that you can log on to where our live stream is and listen to last week's message. We did a special live stream, and I did a, a message on corporate prayer and what I believe, and this is, this is so ironic, uh, my wife was commenting to me, she's heard of, I mean, probably many, many preachers that for some reason or another, seems like a lot of the preachers that we know are emphasizing corporate prayer. And I thought, you know what, I, I, I have no idea what everybody else is doing. God put that on my heart, and I believe that that's the direction that we need as a congregation to start. Um, having more and better corporate prayer. Uh, it is very, very needed in this dark time that we're living in, that folks, if, if God doesn't do something, then it's going to just keep getting darker and darker. And methodology and commitment and, and human character and wisdom and fads and, and um, you know, little trinkets to try to make things happen, none of that's going to be effective if we don't pray and get God working in uh, hearts and lives. And one last announcement, Saturday, we're back to regular schedule, street ministries at noon, and then, of course, ladies' prayer meeting Saturday evening at 7, and the men's prayer meeting is at 8 o'clock. Let's have a really, really good turnout for all of those events this coming Saturday, and uh, let's watch and see what the Lord does. All right, let's stand. Let's sing our last hymn here. Um, the Bible stands on the back of your handout. All right, just as a reminder, where it says Bible, we're saying King James. All right, so the King James stands. Here we go. The King James stands like a rock, undaunted mid the raging storms of time. Its pages burn with the truth. With the lights of life, the King James stands, though the hills may tumble, it will firmly stand when the earth shall crumble. I will plant my feet on its firm foundation, for the King James Bible stands. The King James stands like a mountain. 
Appreciate that, young men. Good job with that. What a blessing. All right. As you take your Bibles, go to 2 Samuel chapter number 6. Uh, just some reminders of prayer. Some people that are in need of prayer here 
in our church congregation. Uh, first of all, uh, Sister Sandra Stafford is very sick. Um, with um, She was diagnosed with um, pancreatic cancer, and uh, she's very, very sick, and I uh, need to pray for her. She doesn't have a prognosis yet as far as treatment, and uh, she's got a meeting this week with a specialist. Sister Sherry Haig starts her chemo treatment this week, and so uh, let's pray for her and her battle with pancreatic cancer as well. Uh, Brother Bob Hartness, as he continues to recover from his surgery there in Baptist Hospital. i got to share this just because it's just uh, for all of you that uh, know Brother Hartness very well. Uh, the morning of his surgery, uh, Sister Barbara's there, and uh, he's, you know, he's pretty medicated. They're getting ready to take him in and uh, repair some fractured vertebrae. And so uh, he's uh, trying to convince Sister Barbara to take him home, and he's get, got it all figured out how he's going to get through this. He's going to make himself a sling, and he's going to you know, do this so that he can... And, and I just I started laughing when Sister Barbara was telling me. I said, that is so Brother Bob. I mean, you talk about a guy that he's... I'm going to fix it, you know. If something's broke or something's not right, uh, I'll figure it out. And uh, I thought that was pretty funny. But uh, his surgery did go well, and the surgeon said that he was a very lucky man, uh, that's just the surgeon's words, and um, that he came within a hair of being uh, paralyzed. And so we praise the Lord that it uh, looks like he's going to be okay. Uh, still got a pretty good road of recovery ahead. Sister Michelle Ham, recovering from her broken hip in the car accident, uh, continue to pray for her. Uh, Sister Leslie Williamson had some shoulder surgery, and so... Uh, uh, I had that last year, and so I know that that can be a real hassle. Brother Campbell, you you know what that's all about, and so do pray for uh, Sister Leslie on that. Good to see you, Sister Maddie, and we've been praying for you, and we'll continue to pray for you as well. Amen. Praise the Lord. That's Praise the Lord. That's wonderful. It sure is good to see you, Sister. And uh, it's good to see everyone here uh, Sunday morning, and uh, it's good to be here in church. And I am looking forward to a better 2022 than 2021 was. And uh, I've talked to a lot of God's people, and uh, this past year was a rough year in many ways. Not just COVID, but it just seems like uh, the spiritual warfare, the circumstantial uh, situations that we're dealing with, uh, griefs and sorrows and battles and struggles and temptations and wanderings and uh, just the whole nine yards. Uh, 2021 was a tough year for many, many people. And so I'm, uh, I'm hopeful and prayerful that uh, through prayer and through the grace of God, that 2022 will be a much better year. And who knows, folks, maybe it could be the year. Uh, we all know that the day is approaching and we see it in the Word of God. It's crystal clear. And a lot of the things that frustrate us and perplex us that are going on around us, uh, all of it uh, doesn't take, none of it takes God by surprise. He told us it would happen. The Apostle Paul knew it was going to happen. Peter knew it was going to happen. So we shouldn't be surprised when it happens. And uh, we shouldn't be discouraged. We should uh, be looking up for our redemption draweth nigh. I have a message this morning that I believe is a very timely important, and prophetic message. I told my wife before, um, while we were getting ready to come to church, I said, well, I said, honey, I said, 
I believe this is a good message. I hope I can do a good job presenting it because I believe this message is that vital and I wish that God's people all over our country and the world for that matter could get a hold of the truths that I'm going to bring to you here this morning. Second Samuel chapter number 6 and verse number 1, again David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. Now, if you'll recall, the ark of God was taken in the days of Saul, and the Philistines took it and captured it. And that didn't go too well with the Philistines. God started smiting them with all kinds of problems, uh, emrods. You know, I, we only really sus- think we know what emrods are, uh, a word that sounds very much like it. I cannot imagine, it's, all I can say is it just cannot in any way be a good thing, amen? And, and, and I will say this, when the Philistines returned the ark, they, they made images of the emrods out of gold. Uh, I, you know, you start thinking that one through, I don't, yeah, I don't know, I don't think I'd want to be the, the model for the sculptor on that one, but bad stuff happened to the Philistines. And so they returned the ark. I hope I haven't lost you through my crudeness here this morning. I apologize if that did. I certainly didn't mean to. Just, I was actually trying to be a little bit funny. Amen. I'll try harder. <laughs> the Philistines returned the ark because God was plaguing them. And uh, they returned the ark in, um, in an ox cart. And uh, we'll, we'll move on from that. Verse number three, they set the ark of God upon a new cart. And brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. They brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets and on Symbols. And when they came to uh, Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David, but David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. We'll stop there. There's more to the story, and certainly David corrects his error a little bit later on, we don't know how long that he waited per se, other than we do know that while the ark was in the house of Obed-Edom, that God blessed his house. I want to speak to you this morning on the subject of pragmatism in the modern church. Join me as we ask the Lord's blessings. Father, 
In Jesus' name, we bow before you, thanking you for your goodness and grace. Thank you for the cross, and Lord, we sincerely say hallelujah for the cross. Lord, it's through the cross of Christ that we have our salvation. Lord, it's the cross of Christ in which we have victory over sin and self. Lord, it's the cross of Christ that shows us the way that we're supposed to live the Christian life. And I pray now, as we bring this message, Lord, a message of wisdom and discernment, Lord, the devil has deceived, Lord, the majority of the church today. Little by little, just incrementally, the the ways of the world have just swept in. Lord, the devil has not only won in making believers, uh, telling them what to think, but Lord, even worse, he's trained us how to think. Lord, when we think the wrong way, we come with the wrong conclusions every time. I pray now that this message will be uh, corrective for anyone who is deceived. I pray for anyone who is not deceived that this would be encouraging and strengthening I think of your admonition to the church in the Revelation to strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die, and I pray that this would be a strengthening message today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, the common man would look at this story that we just read and see God as a bully. Even David, the man after God's own heart, was displeased when God smote Uzzah dead right there on the spot. Now, if we would look at this story from God's standpoint and from a doctrinal standpoint rather than an experiential or an emotional standpoint, uh, we would see something quite different. In fact, we would see that God was not being mean and God was not being a bully, but rather we would see the story of God being extremely lenient and merciful. You see, folks, the ark had been in the house of Abinadab for well over 20 years. It wasn't supposed to be there. It was supposed to be behind the Holy of Holies, behind that veil in the tabernacle. It wasn't supposed to be where it was. So for 20-some years, God had been being merciful. And you know, folks, when we go astray and we do the wrong thing, sometimes... Well, let me back up. Most of the time, if God doesn't instantly smite us, then we become guilty of the sin of presumption, thinking that, well, I got away with it, so maybe maybe I missed something and maybe there's nothing wrong with my behavior to begin with. This story here of David and then putting this ark, the ark, I should say, on this cart and transporting it the way that they were transporting it is a story of pragmatism rather than principle. Let me talk to you this morning about the meaning of pragmatism, first of all. In 1828, a pragmatist was a person who was impertinently busy, always meddling, and that's a quote from Webster's 1828. The root of the word is associated with practice or action over ideals and principles. Now, according to Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, pragmatism is a philosophical tradition that very broadly 
understands knowing the world as inseparable from agency within it. That all philosophical concepts should be tested by a scientific experimentation. That a claim is true if and only if it is useful. Pragmatism, and I'll just take everything that Stanford and everything that Webster and everything that any philosopher has said about pragmatism, and I'll boil it down to one simple statement that pretty much just covers any philosophy or opinion of pragmatism. If it works, then it's right. If something works, if it achieves its desire success, then it must be right, it must be true. Now, pragmatism is like any other philosophy, it evolves. And whereas years ago, pragmatism came into the church and people thought, if it works, it must be true, now it has evolved to the point where now people say, if it works for me, then it's right. How many times have we heard people say that this is my truth? You have your truth, and I have my truth. I tell you what, what a bunch of garbage is that statement. You cannot say, I have my truth, and you're, you have your truth. Truth, by nature, is absolute. If I believe something that's different than you believe, and one is true, then the other, if it's different, then it must be false. And our school system, and sadly, the pulpits in America have convinced people that pretty much anything goes as long as it means something to you. If it works for you, then it must be right. I heard, and this is, I didn't even plan on saying this, but it's relevant. I heard of a, uh, of a Christian mother not long ago. This Christian mother completely disapproved of biblical spanking of her child. And I thought about that. Now, this is a, this is a Bible-believing Christian. And yet, they don't believe in the rod as Solomon wrote about it in the book of Proverbs. What are we saying when we say we know more about child discipline and child training and child rearing than our creator does. What are we really saying? We're saying that, well, we must be smarter or maybe we just don't need God or maybe God changed. But, you know, the bottom line is pragmatism has saturated the church, not only in our worship services, but in the way that God's people lived and live and conduct their lives. Oh, I figured out a new way to make my children do what I want them to do. I'm not going to discipline them with uh, the rod as the Word of God teaches. I'm going to reward them or I'm going to give them a timeout. I'm going to threaten them or just continue to manipulate them to do what I want them to do. And you know what? That works for me. So it must be right. And I could go on and on in every area of the Christian life from our giving, our serving, our church attendance. You know, there are people that seldom go to church or there are people that only go to church on occasion and they're doing fine. And their thought process is, I'm fine. 
So it works for me, so I must be right. The scripture teaches emphatically that God's work should be done God's way. Not all men totally reject God, but the Bible is filled with examples of men doing God's work their own way or the world's way. Leviticus 10 verses 1 through 2, it says, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. There went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. You know, folks, it it just appears to me that just living the Christian life, however we really choose that suits us, or having a church service, or anything else for that matter, if we don't do it God's way, it sounds to me like that God uh, doesn't take it too kindly. Now, here Nadab and Abihu were supernaturally smitten by God. And some would say, well, we've got all kinds of people that corrupt the work of God. You know, there are ministers in the pulpit today that don't even hardly live the Christian life outside of the pulpit. Oh, they can bring a wonderful message that will stir your emotions and give you a feeling. But many of those, and and I say this with a broken heart, there are many that stand behind the pulpit on Sunday and they are unfaithful to their wife on Monday. You think, no, God forbid. It's becoming more and more the norm rather than the exception. I'm telling you, I hear about it weekly and it breaks my heart. And so let's look for just a minute now at the pragmatism in the text that we just read. Where is there, what's wrong with the ox cart? Wouldn't you agree that that seven and a half mile trek from the house of Abinadab up the, the hill, by the way, Jerusalem, when you talk about Jerusalem, it's always uphill. What's wrong with using a cart rather than bearing it on the shoulders? Well, Numbers 4, verse 15, it says, The sons of Kohath, a particular group of Levites, shall come to bear it, but they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. God had Moses... And and the men who fashioned all of the tabernacle, they put rings in the side of the mercy seat. And they had wooden staves that would go through those rings. They could put the staves on their shoulders, but they could not touch the ark lest they die. Numbers 4 gives explicit details on how the ark is to be handled. Now, we can assume that Abinadab was a Levite. I mean, 20 years, the ark's in his house, and you know, it seems like nothing bad really has been happening. Uh, his son, Eleazar, was sanctified to take care of the ark. But I want you to notice here that David called what God did to Uzzah, what did he call it? A breach. What's a breach? <laughs> Interesting, I, I looked up the word breach. It means severed unity. Severed unity. Wouldn't you agree with me today that much of modern Christianity is filled with compromise and expediency lest we 
disrupt the unity. By the way, where did the idea of putting the ark on a cart come from to begin with? came from the Philistines. Kirjath Jerim was approximately seven and a half miles west of Jerusalem. Perez Uzzah, where at least David called it Perez Uzzah, uh, while the exact location is unknown, it is commonly thought to be somewhere near the west wall of Jerusalem, indicating the ox cart ride appeared to be going just fine for about seven of those seven and a half miles. Why didn't God strike somebody dead the moment that they put the ark on the cart to begin with? I don't know. I guess we'll have to ask God when we get there. But I think I know the answer. The answer is all through the Psalms. The Bible talks about God and how His mercy endureth forever. You know, David and his men there, all these men, they weren't the ones that allowed the ark to be taken to begin with. That was Saul. And his generation, and his men. And when you think about this, David was a godly man with good intentions. We see it all in this text. A good man, a godly man, a man after God's own heart, and certainly with the utmost of good intentions. David was dead wrong, brothers and sisters, Who are you, Brother Mitchell, to criticize King David, the man after God's own heart? Listen, I'm not criticizing him. I'm just telling you what happened. He was wrong. And no one noticed until Uzzah was killed by the Lord. So we see pragmatism in our text. Let me talk to you now about pragmatism as a reaction. Pragmatism is not a justified reaction, but I will say this, that much pragmatism is an understandable reaction. Martin Luther said this, he said, softness and hardness are the two main faults from which all mistakes of pastors come, too hard or too soft. I heard one preacher say that the lovers go out loving everybody even the ones they shouldn't love, and the fighters go out fighting everybody, even the people they shouldn't fight. And you know, the devil doesn't care how he gets us off track as long as we are not doing God's work God's way. He doesn't care what ditch that he can get us trapped in as long as we become ineffective for God. This change in America... In American Christianity, I should say, became prevalent in the 1950s. Men were battling the liberalism that spawned out of the European influence that came from the age of enlightenment. You know, folks, you take this a little bit in the 1600s, late 1600s, but the 1700s and the 1800s, You talk about culture, and and all of this started to come to being after God gave us a perfect English Bible. God brought Europe out of the Dark Ages, and it became, I mean, we had a renaissance before that. God brought us a perfect book, and you talk about science and art 
and you talk about creativity, man was thriving and man was learning how to think and there were some thinkers that came from that generation. That's why they called it the Age of Enlightenment. It produced some great men, great men like Wesley and Whitfield and and, and, and the list could go on and on, Finney and, 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 and Talmadge and great, mighty, godly men of God. But it also produced a lot of Bible critic, correcting, philosophical, pragmatic, philosophical Christian leaders who were liberal in their theology, denied the fundamentals of the faith, and yet they were renowned as great Christian scholars. And I, you know, half of them, I can't even pronounce their names. So if you want to look that up, you're, you're welcome. There, there's many of them to find. That produced Protestantism. You say, wait a minute, isn't Protestantism a good thing? Well, my answer to that is yes and no. There's some good things that came out of God's people protesting against the Roman Catholic corruption. But church history proves that many of those Protestants, while they protested Rome, they kept some of the same doctrines. I mean, infant baptism? A person is saved and in the church because they were baptized by proxy as an infant? That is unscriptural. That's heresy. Denominationalism. You know, there's some good things, organizing, working together, accountability. There's good things out of denominationalism, but let's face it. Denominationalism, the longer that it goes on, the more that it just continually goes back to Roman thinking and doctrine. The fundamentalist movement was a result of men like J. Frank Norris, who was a Baptist, by the way, a man named Bob Schuler. They called him Fighting Bob Schuler, who was a Methodist. Now, this is not the Glass Cathedral guy. And these men, among many, many others, passionately opposed liberalism in their denomination. Many of them eventually separated from their denomination. I'm reminded of Ecclesiastes 1, verse number 9, the thing that hath been... It is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be, and there is no new thing under the sun. We're perplexed by what we're seeing, but this is nothing new. All of this is cyclical. Just go from cycle. Revival ultimately ends up in apostasy, and then there's a need for revival once again. Are we not there today? Is there not a need for revival and an awakening and getting back to the Word of God? I submit to you this morning, there's a desperate need. I like what Dr. Peter Ruckman continually reminded his students of the cycle of church history. He said it starts with a man and that then it becomes a movement and then it progresses into a machine and ultimately it ends up a monument. Much of Christianity today has become a monument, something to look at, something to talk about, but nothing that's actually alive and doing the work of God, God's way. Many believers on the fundamentalist side, out of fear, have mistaken modern tools and methods as compromise. 
unwilling to make expedient changes. When I say expedient, not necessary changes, but listen, the way that we have church today is much different than it was 200 years ago. I'm glad I don't have to wear a wig. And I don't think I'd look good in those little ruffle thingies right here either. So I'm glad for that. We have sound system. You know, this congregation purchased this building in the early church. It was just the people gathering wherever they could gather. We have a lot of different things that are different than it used to be. And while many of the modern tools and technology, it facilitates compromise, it doesn't mean that those things in and of themselves are wrong or liberal. Chairs instead of pews, sound systems, screens, websites, God forbid the mark of the beast when a church has a website. (laughs) So many things that if we're not careful out of fear, we'll start labeling things as evil when it's really nothing. It's just a tool and things can become sacred cows because we're afraid of going the wrong direction and rather than just deal with the principles and sort through it and stay on track. I think the bottom line is there's a lot of God's people that just simply aren't filled with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit will help us navigate through all of this crazy nonsense that we're having to deal with today. Listen, culture always has an effect on church. You can't stop it from the way that we dress. Culture is always going to affect things. But here's the problem. When we do it on purpose, because we want to accommodate the culture, (laughs) that's where we went the wrong direction. Listen, you just stay faithful doing the right thing. Over time, you won't even know it and recognize it. Culture will make changes. But just don't accommodate culture because culture is culture. It's not spirituality. And if you have to be like the world to reach the world, we've missed something here from the Word of God. Because God never told us to be like the world. Paul said to the Jews, I became as a Jew. He said to the the weak, I became weak. He's not talking about culture. He's not talking about worldly entertainment and philosophies and dress. He's talking about people being different and you reach them at their level. That's all he meant and how his words have been twisted by the modern movement that is in America today. So speaking of that, let's talk about pragmatism in modern times. The next thing I'm going to show you here is not, this is, I'm not teaching you that this is the way that it is. I'm telling you the way that they think that it is, okay? I hope you, hope you understand that. So, how do you make church effective and relevant in our time? This is the first Google response. How do you make the church effective and relevant? Well, first of all, they answer it by saying, why do people attend church in the first place? Pew Research asked over 4,000 Americans, the main reason people regularly go to church is to feel closer to God. To feel closer to God. 
Can you feel close to God and not be close to God? I submit absolutely. Absolutely. Other leading reasons for going to church include the following three. This is from Pew Research. To provide children with a moral foundation. To become a better person. Or to find comfort in times of trouble. Now, I ask you a question, is there anything wrong with any of those things? Listen, I want to be closer to God, but nothing wrong with feeling closer to God if you are closer to God. Listen, I want our children to have a moral foundation. I want to have comfort in times of my trouble. Nothing wrong with all of those things. But is that the purpose that the Scripture says that the church is here for? I submit to you this morning None of those are the primary purpose of the church. They are benefits, but they are not purpose. The same article, they said, these are proven strategies from growing churches. How do you, how do you get people into church and how do you have an effective, relevant church in today's culture? Number one, you make newcomers feel welcome. Number two, you shorten your sermons. Number three, ask your congregation for feedback. Number four, encourage church members to bring friends. Number five, share videos on social media. And number six, invite people with text messages. That's the answer right there, folks, according to the world. Now, you younger generation, you need to pay close attention. This is what is being instilled in your minds that church is all about. And none of those, these are all fine things. I'm not against any of these, but think about what's being left out here. Paul said, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. That's how a church grows and thrives. We preach a relevant book. We give the whole counsel of God because the word of God is relevant. And you know what? If a topic is not relevant to your particular need, I can promise you that you can sit in a message that has nothing to do with your problem and the Holy Spirit will take the Word of God and He will minister to your heart and you'll walk out of this place encouraged and fed and strengthened even though your topic never even came up. If it's happened a hundred times in my life, it's happened a thousand. God the Holy Spirit blesses His Word Listen, why should Christians be as relevant as possible? Here's what Christianity Today said in 2016. And I quote, Often out of an attempt to keep things black and white, pastors avoid change altogether. We refrain from church marketing, abandoning social media and blogging, and keeping worship, preaching, and services old school because being contemporary might belittle the message of Christ. Don't get me wrong about the idea of relevance. I'm not suggesting that we water down sin issues and allow issues such as same-sex marriage, alcoholism, drug use, and the like. Sin is still sin, but when we start shutting down doors to gain access to Christ, we're actually losing the essence of the gospel in hopes of saving it. Lest you misunderstand where I'm going with this, that second paragraph that I just read is not totally false. But the issue is, What do we do with that mentality? Do we accommodate the world? Listen, if we are faithful to the Lord, 
then God has the love of Christ in our hearts. Let me tell you something. When visitors come into this church, if you are saved and filled with the Holy Spirit, you're going to have a heart for them. You're going to love them and be friendly, and you're going to minister to them without any seven-step training process from your pastor. You're going to have a love in your heart for them, trying to reach people, trying to help people. Pastor's not going to have to tell you this, these six things to do. So if we're talking about pastors, this is the, the, the last paragraph. If we're talking about pastors wearing skinny jeans, worship leaders changing their genres, and preachers speaking messages with cool illustrations and pretty graphics, then by all means, we have to be Jews to the Jews and Greeks to the Greeks. He's saying there's nothing wrong with all of those things. Listen, I, I, before it ever became a means of reaching people, skinny jeans on a preacher is stupid. Not just preachers either. Music genres. All these different things. Cool illustrations and pretty... There's nothing wrong with graphics. Nothing wrong with having quality and doing, using tools. You know, you know, that's a tool right there. That's so that, that's, that's for people that you, I can give you more Bible with that tool and you can actually not just hear me say it, but you can read along and see it. Whereas if I didn't have that screen, I'd have to limit some of my scripture references because we couldn't spend two hours. We'd have to spend all this time turning your Bibles and then it just would break the continuity. If we didn't have this tool, you know what we'd do? We'd break the continuity and do what we got to do. But we have the tool. Not to mention the fact that, let's face it, and I can't change this, but the attention span of people today is about that of a gnat. Everything I just read to you is the same thing that Rick Warren said in his Purpose Driven Church. We change the methods, but we still stand strong for the message. My question is, and we're, what, probably 20, 25 years after that became the fad in Christianity, the question that I ask is, how's that working? Because it just seems to me like the message is nowhere near what it used to be. Listen, I I think I told you, for Christmas, I got these um, Bluetooth headphones that protect my hearing in my shop. And man, I've been listening to some good preaching. Good preaching. Lester Roloff. Vance Havner. Man, I, I did not listen to Vance Havner that much. Man, I love that guy. At least everything I've heard so far. I mean, great men of God from yesterday. I've heard some sermons of C.H. Spurgeon read. Spurgeons from um, uh, McLaren over in England hundreds of years ago. And it's like, wow, that was some great God-honoring Bible truth. You compare it to what's being preached today, it makes what's being preached today a bunch of nonsense. You can get more truth on Mr. Rogers' neighborhood than you can the average church today. So how's that working? I tell you, it ain't working very good. 
Now, before I get to the next part of my message, I want to give it a preface that's very important, and that is this. I'm going to be reading some things here today that um, I really don't want to because uh, I'm going to be quoting uh, a few men here that are good men, like David, better men than me. And I'm not saying this necessarily uh, criticism, but rather I'm just telling you what has happened. Because if we don't, if it, listen, if I'm so vague in general that we don't know what happened in the past, how can we correct it? Changes started happening in American Christianity from 1950 to 2000. Listen, Billy Graham, and I owe a debt of gratitude to Billy Graham. One of his itinerant evangelists preached to me as a five-year-old boy. I got saved as a result of his ministry. And I guarantee you, you, if you weren't influenced toward the gospel by him, you know somebody that got born again because of his preaching and his crusades. In his early years, he was unmistakably identified, unmistakably, not mistakenly, unmistakably identified as a fundamentalist in his early years of ministry. I've read, uh, uh, let me see, I've read probably seven or eight books or more, uh, some written by him, some written by others about him, and it is crystal clear that he was one of these guys, he was just a nice guy. I mean, how many people could be around him and not just love him? I'm one of them. I've probably been to the Billy Graham Library 15 times, and I thoroughly enjoy it every single time. But he, um, he was influenced by men such as his father-in-law, Nelson Bell, uh, a man by the name of Harold Ockengay, who was pastor of Park Street Baptist Church in Boston, founder of Fuller Theological Seminary, and ultimately uh, of the Christianity Today publication. You take that influence, among others, many others, in conjunction with unprecedented crowds and success that contributed to a radical change in philosophy for Dr. Graham. Writings and quotes make it crystal clear that the mentality was that it wasn't compromise as long as it afforded more people to hear the gospel. You know what that is, folks. If it works, it's okay. That's pragmatism. In 1978, McCall Magazine quoted Brother Graham as saying, I used to believe that pagans in far countries were lost if they did not have the gospel of Christ preached to them. I no longer believe that. After saying that, obviously 1978, when the, the church, when Christians in America still somewhat knew the scripture and had some backbone, that caused some major backlash. The uh, Billy Graham Evangelistic Association quickly claimed that he was misquoted. And yet, in 1997, Robert Schuller not fighting Bob, but the Glass Cathedral guy from California, power of positive thinking gospel message guy, 
interviewed Dr. Graham and asked him a similar question. He responded, and this is on national television, by the way. He said, I think that everybody that loves or knows Christ, whether they are conscious of it or not, they are members of the body of Christ. They may not know the name of Jesus, but they know in their hearts that they need something that they do not have. And they turn to the only light they have, and I think that they are saved and that they are going to be in with us in heaven. Folks, I understand where he's coming from. He's being a nice guy. Nobody likes to think about people that don't hear, that don't know. Nobody wants to represent Christianity as, sorry, they're going to go to hell. But the fact of the matter is that the name of Jesus... There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now, I will say this. He, he, he was partly right in the sense that, listen, if there's somebody whose heart is searching and they're responding to the light that God has given them, I believe that God will, will pull out all stops to get a gospel message to that pagan. He did it with Peter and Cornelius, Amen. But to say that someone who's never heard the name of Jesus is saved just like you and I, that is false. Now, by the way, in all of my studies of this dear brother, in all honesty, this is my opinion, I don't believe he really believed that. I believe that he was trying to keep from offending people so that more people would come and actually hear the gospel. I believe it was just pragmatism. When he said that, Robert Schuler about had a conniption fit. Oh, praise the Lord, that's wonderful. I mean, it thrilled his soul to hear that. I think it was just pandering or patronizing. I, don't, I mean, I don't think he really believed that. And then we come up into uh, more modern times, and a man by the name of Bill Hybels started a big movement right outside of Chicago, and he was a total pragmatist. In fact, when he started his Willow Creek community, the way that they started that church is literally thousands of his people would go around in neighborhoods and subdivisions, and they would take a poll, and they would ask lost people what you'd like to see in church. They accumulated all that information and they said, we're going to make church be what lost people want it to be. And that's exactly what they did. And you talk about growing, mega church. And you talk about successful, it was a huge success. In 2007, Bill Hybels in Christianity Today admitted that he made a mistake. He said, we made a mistake. What we should have done when people crossed the line of faith and became Christians, we should have started telling people and teaching people that they have to take responsibility to become self-feeders. We should have gotten people, taught people how to read their Bible between service, how to do the spiritual practices much more aggressively on their own. All right, well, let's say that's not bad. But he ended the article on this note. Our dream is that we fundamentally change the way we do church. That we take out a clean sheet of paper and we rethink all of our old assumptions. Replace it with new insights. Insights that are informed by research 
and rooted in Scripture. Our dream is to really discover what God is doing and how He's asking us to transform this planet. Where did God ask us to transform this planet? He didn't. And by the way, in Heibel's apology for the error that he made, his entire apology is nothing but pragmatic. We made a mistake because some of the outcome of what we did, it didn't work the way that it was supposed to be. Nothing has changed. He's just being more pragmatic than he ever was. Thank you for your patience this morning. Let's talk about pragmatism in our crowd. An old preacher I personally know was concerned about where to send his preacher boys to Bible college. This is me speaking. He told me this firsthand. He expressed this concern to Dr. Jack Hiles about the lack of emphasis on Bible doctrine. Hiles said to him, and I'm quoting to the best of my ability, I didn't write this down, but I remember the conversation vividly. He said, we don't emphasize doctrine, that causes problems. We emphasize soul winning. Nothing wrong with soul winning. But wouldn't you agree that a Bible college should, we should be emphasizing Bible doctrine, amen? I don't know how many times that I've heard Paul Chapel say his motto, motto is, let's keep the main thing the main thing, and the main thing is soul winning. Listen, soul winning's great. It's a high priority. But folks, it is not the main thing. When you have that as a mentality, it is a very conservative, a very orthodox form of pragmatism, but nevertheless, it is still pragmatic rather than principled. We're not trying to build God's church. God will build His church. Our job is to preach the gospel. Our job is to live the Christian life, to learn Bible doctrine, and ultimately the main thing is that God calls out a people unto His name and that we bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. Much more multifaceted than just this pragmatic idea of soul winning and building large ministries. Now, once again, remember I prefaced it. Good men, far better than me. Good motives, great motives, but still, just like David, wrong. Pragmatic. Ox cart religion. So what's the danger of pragmatism? Well, you know, pragmatism, if it works, it must be right. Let's face it, there are a lot of philosophies and methods and means. They work. Jehoshaphat was a great king of Judah. Tremendous king. Second Chronicles 17.3, And the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the first ways of his father David and sought not unto Balaam. Great king followed the Lord. But somehow or another, Jehoshaphat was determined to be in league with Ahab. You know who Ahab, Ahab and Jezebel, Baal worshippers, pagan, evil, evil king and queen. 
Jehoshaphat was determined to be tight with him, to go to battle with him. I, I can only think that Jehoshaphat perhaps had good intentions and he thought, maybe I can be a good godly influence on Ahab and unite these, you know, the northern tribes and Judah and we can get back to where we need. Maybe he thought that him being nice to Ahab was going to usher in revival. Folks, that's the same mentality that happened with the BGEA back in the 50s and Fuller Seminary and Christianity Today and what we call new evangelicalism, neo-evangelist. We're not going to make a difference by separating from false doctrine and false practice and immorality. We're going to join right in there with them and we're going to infiltrate them from within. The only problem is God says, come out from among them and be ye separate. God says, have nothing to do with them. Not because we're better, not because it's mean or hateful, because it's the principles that God said, this is how we deal with it. You know, some people must think that God can't do anything without us. I think I've figured out already that more often than not, I just get in God's way. 2 Kings 8, verse 16. Listen, the question is, is, is there a danger in pragmatism? Well, 2 Kings eight sixteen it says, In the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat being then king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign, verse 18, and he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, as did the house of Ahab, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Did Jehoshaphat ever become a Baal worshiper like Ahab? No, but he started hobnobbing with him and got so close that his son saw the daughter of Ahab and says, Whew, she's pretty good looking. I want her. And so he married her, and here's this great godly king, and his son becomes a pagan Baal worshiper who did evil in the sight of the Lord the very next generation. Is there a danger in pragmatism? Boy, if you're not seeing it around us, then uh, you need to open your eyes and wake up and smell the coffee. In conclusion, in conclusion, is there any hope for us? Is there any hope for us? God pronounced judgment on the descendants of Hezekiah. We just referred to Hezekiah last week. Hezekiah was supposed to die. Isaiah told him, listen, you're, you're, you're done. God's going to, you're, you're not going to recover from this sickness. Hezekiah turned, turned in his bed, faced the wall and began to pour out his heart to God. And God said to Isaiah, go back up there and tell him, I heard your prayer. I saw your tears. I'm giving you 15 more years. Do you know that when Hezekiah died, the Bible says that Manasseh, his son, was 13 years old when he began to reign. Manasseh was born during that 15-year extension of Hezekiah's life. Do 
Second Kings 21, verse number 9, but they hearkened not, and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than did the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. That's bad news. Manasseh actually seduced Judah. They were worse than the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the ones that, remember what God said? I want to spew them out of the land. They make me sick, God said. That's what Judah had become under the influence of Manasseh. But is there any hope? Manasseh had a grandson by the name of Josiah. Josiah brought in a revival to Judah in his days. How did that come about? It's a wonderful story. They found the Word of God in the house of God. It was stuck in a closet. They found it buried in the junk, and they dusted it off, and they unrolled it. They were in scrolls back then, and they brought it, and Josiah read it, and they didn't even get very far in reading it, that Josiah rent his clothes. And he said, God's angry at us. We are messed up. We're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. And you know what Josiah did? This doesn't sound very profound, but he started doing what he was supposed to do. You know what that's called? Revival. Revival. Not an emotional outpouring. It's, it's just simple. We haven't been thinking right. We haven't been doing right. Let's go back to thus saith the Lord and let's get it right. Revival. Now listen, Josiah repented. Things got fixed. Hey, it didn't last to the next generation. But it was 31 years of reprieve in Judah. Hey, how would you like to see the next 31 years in America be like that? Listen, that'd get me, that'd get me into my 90s. I could live with the next 31 years. Some of you, that would get you to see your children and your grandchildren saved and get them married right and serving the Lord and glorifying the Lord if we just would have a move back to God. There is hope. It was messed up in Josiah's day, but Josiah did the right thing and God blessed it and sent a revival. 31 years. Yes, brothers and sisters, there is hope. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse number 6, Paul said to Corinth, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Folks, we are so much like Laodicea. We're increased with goods. And we got large churches, and we got money, and we got ministers, and we got music. We got all of these wonderful, wonderful things that are just big. How Hey, listen, Christianity today has become... Cool. We've become so much like the world that the world laughs at us, folks. The world looks at the church and they just think, we've become a joke. And, and, and the sad part is, is we're so full of ourselves that we don't even recognize it. Paul said, your glorying is not good. You're glorying in your shame. 
A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. That's what pragmatism has done. Listen, were these great men who went the wrong direction and followed pragmatic philosophies rather than scriptural principles? Listen, were, were they wicked or evil? Absolutely not. They were good men with good intentions. But they veered just a little ways. Listen, back in the early days, it was still, we've changed our methods, but our, 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 our message is still the same. But with those change, when you start veering from biblical methods and philosophies and mentalities, you go just a little bit, and the further that you go, you get further and further and further away. And that's where we're at today. That little leaven has just leavened the entire lump. The entire church is saturated with pragmatism. So... Pragmatism or sola scriptura? What's sola scriptura? Well, it's Latin for, I'll just paraphrase, the Bible only. Solely the scripture. Not if it works, it's right, but rather, thus saith the Lord, it's the principles of the word of God. This is the only thing that's right. We're not going to do a... uh, we're not going to do an, uh, uh, um, a, um, we're not going to poll people. We're not going to see what everybody thinks and which way is the wind blowing. We're not going to adopt the world's methods to try to do God's work. We're just going to simply trust God, do it His way, and trust Him for the results and be content with whatever results. These two concepts stand in opposition as each claims to be the key in determining truth. As Christians, we need to decide if we are going to depend upon Scripture as the absolute standard of truth, or if we will determine truth by its consequences, by its results. Colossians 2, verse number 8. Once again, nothing new under the sun. Beware, lest any man spoil you... Take away what God's given you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. We need to be be aware and we need to beware of the leaven of pragmatism that's in the church today, that's in our lives today. And we need to start doing God's work, God's way. We need to start raising our children the way that the Word of God says. We need to start making choices and decisions in what we do. Everything about our life should be determined by not what works for me, but what is right in the eyes of God. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, I ask that you would... Bless the message. Lord, we've done our best to, um, to give the truth. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, help us now to sort through all of these, all of this factual information. And Lord, one thing that I, I certainly ask you, we, we certainly don't want to pat ourselves on the back and be proud of what we believe or who we are. 
And Lord, many of these great men, uh, Lord, there's many things that their example and their teachings that we should follow. But Lord, when they veer away from the Word of God, uh, we veer away from them. And I pray that you'd help us to discern and sort through this information. Above all, help us as individuals to see the pragmatism in our own Christian lives and correct it, purge it, and get back to a biblical, not only worldview, but a biblical view of ourself, a biblical view of you and your expectations. Help us to be a separated, holy people, uh, Lord, so that we can make a difference in this world. We ask for your blessings and the help of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Remain seated, head bowed and eyes closed. I want to encourage you to talk to God today. The message has been a little longer than I wanted it to be, but I make no apology. I've told you what I believe God wanted me to tell you. And I'm not preaching against people outside these walls. I'm preaching to people inside these walls. I guarantee you that there's areas in all of our life, mentalities and behavior, and that we need to correct. Maybe, you're, maybe you don't need to correct anything, but maybe you just needed the reminder of what we're dealing with here today. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. We'll be dismissed in a word of prayer. And uh, once again, thank you for your patience. All of you young people, boys and girls, thank you for your patience and um, for listening intently. And uh, I don't take that lightly, but uh, just trust that your pastor today had some things that uh, I really felt needed to be said, and I certainly didn't want to cut that short. So thank you, boys and girls, for your patience as well as all of the rest of you. Brother Jagrup, I'd like to ask you to close us in a word of prayer, and when he's finished praying, then you are dismissed. God bless you.